This is Echo Zoe Radio, episode 136 for August 2019 with Roger Patterson for World Religions and Cults, part two. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio, the podcast outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries, where you'll hear about important topics affecting the church today. Our primary goal is to explore a variety of issues while remaining faithful to God and His Word. Stay with us for the next hour as your host, Andy Olson, shares his conversation with this month's guest. Here's your host, Andy Olson. I'm Andy Olson. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. This is episode 136 for August 2019 with Roger Patterson. Roger's a former high school chemistry and biology teacher from Wyoming and now a curriculum writer, editor, and member of the editorial review board for Answers in Genesis. He and Bodie Hodge put together a three-volume resource entitled World Religions and Cults, and he first joined Echo Zoe Radio in February of 2017 to discuss a few of the religions covered in the books. He returns this month to discuss a few more of them. Show notes for this episode are available. You'll find a basic outline of the discussion and links to additional resources. There's also a video version of the episode if you prefer, and you can find that at echozoe.com slash 136. I'm also happy to announce that the Echozoe website has been updated with its first redesign in eight years. Uh, please check that out if you haven't been to the site for a while. There are more resources available, including... Uh, an entire section for the lessons and logic videos that I've been posting over the last few months on a weekly basis. Um, hopefully you'll find the new site to be both refreshing and uh, easy to browse and uh, easy to navigate. Especially, I've, uh, it's a special improvement for uh, mobile browsing. So if you're checking the site out on mobile, it's much, much better now. And finally, before we begin, uh, I haven't mentioned email alerts in a while. Because of the most popular social media platforms are pretty aggressively censoring both political conservatives and Christian accounts, uh, they can't really be counted on for when we need them. So uh, I've, I've had uh, email alerts for quite some time, many years. Uh, you can sign up for them at the website. And when I post a new episode, you'll get an alert uh, just in case Twitter and Facebook are not there to, to count on them when we need them. And you'll only get emails when we get new episodes. Uh, you're, you're not going to get any other emails, and your email address is safe with me. So with that, here's my discussion with Roger. Roger Patterson, it's a pleasure to have you back on Echo Zoe Radio. Great to be back with you again. Yeah, this time video. So you were on about uh, <laughs> two and a half years ago, and I've been doing more more video since then. Yep. So um, we're going to kind of just pick up sort of uh, where we left off back in February of 2017. Uh, you came on to talk about the books on uh, world religions and cults, uh, the three-volume set. We talked about a few of them at the time, and um, we're just going to talk about some more this time. Yeah, we've got the, uh, I've got a big copy here now, the so this is the the box that you're referring to, the World Religions and Cults, uh, Volumes 1, 2, and 3. 
mm-hmm. and comes in this handy little kit and there's a bonus poster that comes with it that describes some of the uh, how the different religions have spread over time and so we'll be diving into some of these topics tonight yeah and i remember talking a little bit last time about that chart that you just pointed out and how fun that was for me and i went back you know preparing for today went back and looked at a lot of that material again and um, just sucked me right back in just like I did the first time. Um, it's really cool, especially seeing the the different denominations and some denominations, some cults, but um, how they fork off from each other throughout history and where they, you know, where each, these different denominations come from. And obviously it's not exhaustive, but um, it's got, a you know, quite a few of the larger dom- denominations on there and Kind of where they're yeah history it was is. quite a quite a chore to put all those things together several of us from the ministry worked on it and kind of double checked each other's work and Bodie Hodge was the one who kind of did the big framework and then a couple of us came in behind and and checked through some of those things but yeah so if you've under ever wondered where the particular Baptists and the regular Baptists <laughs> and the general Baptists and where all those different Baptists come from and those types of things are detailed on that chart <laughs> yeah very cool well, you had a suggestion for tonight that I really liked. I uh, I think we we talked about not knowing if we want to do it at the beginning or the end. I th- I, I think I I thought it through since then and um, um, talking about the appendix to is it volume two volume two on my notes here. yeah one of the appendixes in volume two mm-hmm. uh, which talks about engaging other religions and I really thought about it and thought that might be a good place to start and then we can kind of refer back to that as we walk through some specific religions and stuff. So Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, let's start with that. Um, talking about evangelism. It, it's not just evangelism, but evangelism, apologetics, discipleship, and how we can engage uh, as we're engaging other religions. Yeah. I think um, one of the, one of the big things I've, run into as I've taught this in my church and interacted with people through the ministry and things. Um, people get really intimidated and they think they've got to know all the answers before they can be engaging people. And so with this with this specific appendix, what I wanted to do is try to uh, help people set aside some of those fears because uh, we don't really need to know everything about every religion before we can ever engage somebody in a conversation and not knowing what to expect. And I think just some good basic principles from Scripture that will guide us. Uh, We often think about uh, the idea of evangelism connected to Matthew 28, the Great Commission passage. But if you think about that passage uh, and you connect it to the other teachings of Jesus, he's telling the disciples they're going to go and make other disciples and teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Well, one of the things is to share the gospel with other people. And so that that is perpetuated, passed on. And as we do that, then evangelism rolls naturally into a discipleship. Mm-hmm. And uh, we never want to divorce those two things. When we think about doing evangelism, uh, we should flow right into a discipleship relationship with somebody. The opportunity arises, we share the gospel with them, God converts them. Uh, then we can bring them right into that discipleship relationship. And then mm-hmm. on the other side of that, you have the connection between evangelism and apologetics. So as we're sharing the gospel with people and, and interacting with people in different ways, whether it's in our uh, community or clubs we're involved in or at work, school, wherever that is, 
we are going to get asked questions. So tying that in with First Peter three fifteen, and uh, the the call to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have, and ultimately that hope is in Christ, and being able to answer people's basic questions and point them back to to Christ, and then bring those things into the gospel. So when we talk about these things, we're always bringing in evangelism, apologetics, and discipleship, keeping them all connected together as they are in Scripture. Mm-hmm. And um, you kind of roll in from that. I think this this next thing goes back to what you were saying about, um, you know, I think we've all been there. We've all been in that situation that you described where you feel like you got to know everything about everything, and you're just not sure, like, you know, how do I engage with somebody with a specific religion if I don't know everything about their religion and know their religion better than than, than they do, so that I can point out the flaws and and um, you know why it's it's not as solid as uh, as my own worldview. Um, but it really helps. I think that comes with what comes with maturity is understanding that. Um, you you don't really have to know everything about every other religion. You just got to know your own. You, we got to know the biblical worldview pretty well. And with that, we'll, we'll do well. Yes, we have a solid foundation in Scripture. If we're grounded in the Word, uh, studying these things, we know basic Bible doctrines. We might not know the address to everything in Scripture, and we might not be able to quote everything perfectly. But having a working knowledge as, as we are training our own minds and uh, being steeped in scripture, those things are going to come out of us. And the Holy Spirit's going to use those things that we've learned from the word to communicate to people. So we we never have to be uh, fearful that we won't have the exact Bible passage and the, everything perfectly in order, but we can trust that God will use us, especially that the Holy Spirit will be working through us as we're seeking to communicate the gospel to people. And mm-hmm. if we know what the Bible says and we engage people, um, The way I think about it is if you don't know anything about this religion, somebody comes up to you and, uh, for example, the the example I always use is Baha'i. If if you're sitting next to the airplane with someone of the Baha'i faith and you have no idea what that is, and I imagine some of your listeners right now are scratching their heads, but you don't have to know anything about that. And uh, the best way to deal with that is just to ask questions. Just Mm -hmm. be curious and and try to understand the other person and seek to really listen to them as they're sharing about what they believe, then uh, you can listen to those things. And you say, oh, that's interesting. Do you mind if I share what the Bible says about that? It says these things. And so we can definitely be uh, engaging people of various faiths, even if we don't have a solid knowledge, just by asking good questions, really stopping and listening to them, and then responding back with uh, truth from scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting you you mentioned Baha'i because that was on my list, and I hope we can get to that eventually because uh, I'm in that category. I know almost nothing about Baha'i. Uh, well, let's say I do know nothing about Baha'i except having looked through the kind of the, the the topic headings in in that particular chapter of the book. But uh, um, yeah, I mean that's. Uh, that's it, it, so um it's so freeing when you finally reach a point in maturity in our walk that we can understand that um that that's the case that just knowing your scripture and uh and 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 from that like you said asking good questions and probing and eventually you'll 
you can kind of figure out the system and how to how yeah. to do it without mm-hmm. without being an yeah, act. The way we structured the books is that uh, each of the chapters at the end of it has kind of the basic framework of thinking about six key concepts. Uh, what does this religious view say about God? What does mm-hmm. it say about the nature of man? Uh, what where does the authority or revelation in this worldview? Uh, what's the nature of sin? What's the nature of salvation? And how did we get here? The creation question. So if you can just frame, think about those six ideas with any worldview, no matter what it is, whether it's uh, whether you think of it as a standard religion or not, asking mm-hmm. questions around those six ideas can lead you into every aspect of the gospel and work in those gospel conversation angles uh, just by asking those things about this religion. So what do you think about God? Who is God in your religion? Yeah, it's good. And well, um, I'd like to kind of walk through some of those questions as we talk about specific religions and sects and stuff, just to see how that plays out and how we might engage, you know, like a Baha'i or um, I'd like to start with uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. And so maybe we'll transition from engaging other religions to Eastern Orthodoxy. And I, I threw Eastern Orthodoxy in because as an American, as a Westerner, it's kind of mysterious. You know, we're, we see a lot of Catholics, Roman Catholics, um, in our day-to-day life. We've ha- got them in our families and we were friends with them and coworkers with them and stuff. So we understand uh, the Western church, um, historically, but, um, Eastern Orthodoxy is a mystery. So as we transition through talking to about some of these different religions and cults, can we start with Eastern Orthodoxy and you know what what sets them apart from the rest of Christianity? Sure. So we think about um, Christianity in the broad sense. We go back to the time of Christ. We know that through history there were different um, church councils who were deciding things. Different uh, bishops were prominent in different areas uh, throughout the world. Uh, especially around the Mediterranean region into Africa and then spreading out from there. And so the church was originally uh, this uh, conglomerate of, of bishoprics or however you want to describe that of different areas that were headed by these main churches. And eventually there were about five to seven main areas where these uh, bishop, influential bishops and churches were. And the two that we kind of think about as we as we get to Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox would be uh, Constantinople and Rome. Mm-hmm. And so basically, the uh, there was a a falling out in 1054 over a little clause that was added to the uh, Nicene Creed, where it talks about the uh, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, and then the Roman Church added and the Son, and with good scriptural justification, but that alienated the Eastern churches who didn't want to include this phrase. Uh, in Latin, it was filioque, so this is often called the, the filioque controversy, and it led to, in 1054, what's known as the Great Schism. So at that point, basically, uh, the patriarch of the Eastern churches uh, excommunicated Roman, the Roman Pope, Leo IX, and, and vice versa. And so it was this mutual excommunication, and neither really had the authority to do that to one another. But from that point on, we kind of get these two separate uh, church structures that are really dominating uh, through all of Europe and into the Middle East. 
And so the Roman Catholic Church um, follows that line of papacy and, and the Eastern Orthodox churches uh, get spread through Eastern Europe and into the Middle East in these various areas. And we get a very similar structure. So they're similar in a lot of ways because they come out of a very, a very formal liturgical style of worship. Mm-hmm. And they're very connected to the sacraments and both of those systems. So in a lot of those ways, they share that common common ground with Roman Catholicism. I think one of the uh, one of the key ways that they're different, while they will uh, the Eastern Orthodox will baptize people as uh, infants, uh, they also have a separate ceremony called chrismation, which they believe is the imparting of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So that's one of those things that separates them, and they do a ceremony with anointed oil to impart that. Uh, but very much like the Roman Catholic Church, they believe that uh, that person is granted God's grace and favor and regenerated at that time, that the Holy Spirit is available to them, and that uh, is a very different concept of what we have in Protestantism of the Holy Spirit not uh, being with a person until they have professed faith. And so uh, there are really a lot of similarities to Roman Catholicism in that sense. Okay, so um, going back to your list, you you had when we talked about when we're going to um, take a look at another religion. Um, I I'll skip over the first two. I think God and man are going to be you know being a a, a branch of Christianity. They're going to be pretty similar to to what you and I sure, believe. They'd, they'd have a Trinitarian view. Um, they would have a little bit higher view of man than a, a typical Protestant would. Okay. Uh, man's a little bit more of a, a neutral character, though having a, a sinful nature, um, not quite as extreme as what we would think of in a Protestant culture. Somewhat Pelagian, then, maybe coming from a maybe a Western understanding, or yeah, yeah. So the the idea of original sin is not a big uh, talking point or a big concept inside of Eastern Orthodox theology. Okay, but the, what I was getting at then is the authority. What like definitely you know. We understand Roman Catholicism as having a different authority. You know, they put a lot more emphasis on uh, tradition in the church than we would, whereas we as Protestants are, are sola scriptura. We put our authority solely on the scriptures. Yeah. So in Eastern Orthodoxy, they would kind of blend uh, the ideas. So in, in the Roman church, they have the magisterium of the church, those leaders, specifically the pope, who can speak ex cathedra from the chair and make pronouncements on scripture and they have scripture as the second part of that in eastern orthodox traditions uh, they kind of blend those two together and they really rely heavily on the um, the writings of church fathers and a few influential theologians over the ages Uh, but they'd really um, lean on the interpretations provided for them by those church fathers so rather than going to the scriptures as an authority, where even a Roman Catholic would agree that the scriptures authority, they would almost look at the church fathers and their interpretations and presentations of those ideas as authoritative. So their tradition and scripture really get blended together a lot more than even in Roman Catholicism. So almost worse than Roman Catholicism from a Protestant point of view. Yeah, because the, um, 
the Bible can't be interpreted freely by individuals. Uh, the Holy Spirit's not going to guide individuals in interpreting Scripture, but we would only know what Scripture means as it comes down to us through uh, through the church, and um, not a real opportunity to change a lot of that thinking. So it's very bound to tradition. Okay. Um, sin and salvation going to be pretty similar to what we would. Uh, the concept of sin is is fairly similar. Um, it would lean toward a more of a, a plagian view of man's will. Sure. And um, when they talk about the idea of salvation, they really downplay uh, any any real notion of uh, the atonement, especially any type of penal substitutionary atonement. They would pretty much reject that view of the atonement, and they would look at other theories like the exemplar theory or governmental theory of atonement to try and explain those things and more than focusing on the cross and what what was accomplished on the cross they tend to focus on the incarnation and the resurrection so with the incarnation they're really looking at christ as our example our perfect Mm -hmm. example and that we can follow along with him so it's a very uh, penitential view of salvation where man must cooperate alongside of of God. And um, they would use the terms uh, theosis that they're tra- or deification, that they're really truly seeking to become uh, very much like God. And they would use uh, passages um, that would refer to taking on that we're becoming more and more like Christ than we are. Uh, being partakers of the divine image, as Peter talks about. So we take those passages and really emphasize them. So man must be uh, working alongside with God in a very synergistic way to achieve salvation over a lifetime. So rather than having a point of time where you're justified, and, and we would, as Protestants, we would say that happens at a moment in time where justified and secured by God, uh, and then we grow in sanctification. They would say that salvation is a process over time and that it won't be fully realized until a person is in the eternal state. Okay. That's, that's uh, got some similarities into Catholicism in a yeah. lot of ways, too. Mm-hmm. So before I depart from Eastern Orthodoxy, I think it, it would be good to get back to that first topic that we, we brought up at the beginning. Um, and, you know, I don't have a lot of personal experience with Eastern Orthodoxy, but... Uh, my family has some friends that we met um, about seven years ago that are originally from Ukraine. And so they're Eastern Orthodox. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, they actually live not far from you. They're on, in Cincinnati and we get down and visit them once in a while. Um, and we've attempted to engage and share the gospel with them. And it's, it's difficult. How would you think that what would, what advice could you give me as I as I you know specifically with my Ukrainian friends, but with anybody who's engaging with an Eastern Orthodox um, person? To, uh, to... I think one of the key aspects is going to be uh, what's the nature of the Bible. So they understand the Bible is kind of this more mysterious book, and they they aren't really trained that they can read it and understand it. And so pointing pointing back to Scripture and trying to deal with the nature of scripture that it's god's true revelation to us that he wouldn't try to trick us or hide things from us 
Uh, these things are laid out plainly in Scripture. We can read them and understand them, uh, especially with the Holy Spirit Spirit's guidance or, or someone guiding us along those ways. That would be one key area. And the other key area would be uh, just pointing them to rest. So uh, whether it's Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodox or my family's Mormon, all of those systems are based on what I have to do to earn favor with God and, and maintain my salvific state and all of these things. But Christ says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I will often point back to uh, that rest in Christ as just a kind of a fallback position as I'm dealing with any works-based system, especially those that are kind of connected uh, to some counterfeit form of Christianity. So pointing to rest in Christ, that I don't have to work for my salvation, that Christ has accomplished that for me, and I don't have to worry about those things, that I'm secure in Christ, is always a, a great way to uh, get people to realize all that Christ has done and, and point back to his sufficient work for us. Right. Yeah, I'll have to. I'll uh, definitely keep that in mind, and I, I almost certainly come back and listen to this again next time. We we see them about every two or three years. You know, we we'll get together. Um, we met in uh, 2012 as our both. We both had kids that were getting radiation treatments in Indiana in Bloomington, Indiana, for uh, brain cancer. Our son was more. You know, we don't we don't use the word cured, but. He's been clear ever since 2012. <laughs> Unfortunately, their daughter ended up passing away uh, a few years later. But um, they're, they originally came over here for treatments and um, were planning on going back to Ukraine once they were done. And um, now they've been in the process of, of trying to stay here as legal residents and stuff. So as far as I know, they're still here. And they're, still, they're actually up applying for asylum with a lot of the the turmoil going on over in Ukraine right now, they're using that as kind of a, a, a method to, to legally stay here. And so for the time being, they've got legal status while they await a, an asylum hearing, but um, uh, definitely we'll listen back to this. If we get another chance to get together with them and, and see, and it was interesting because they, you know, when we were there last time, it was a time that you and I met face to face when we went yeah. to the creation <laughs> museum, um, they invited us to their church, of course. And, we didn't go to a service. Um, now that would have been interesting as I was reading the chapter on Eastern Orthodoxy that it's, it's very different than we're used to. And, um, but the big thing that stuck out just seeing the building and, and kind of meeting a few of the people that were still there on a Sunday afternoon was there's no place to sit. I mean, you walk in and it's just an open, <laughs> no chairs, no pews, no benches, <laughs> just an open room. And that, that was uh, quite interesting. Yeah, I think that's a, a part of the Eastern culture that's carried into the, the church tradition there. So some of the different uh, branches will. So you talk about, so they would probably be a part of the Ukrainian or the Russian Orthodox Church I in that region. And there's the Greek Orthodox and yeah. um, other groups that they they uh, have a lot of uh, similarities and they share a lot of the heritage and, and that. A lot of those things, but there would be some differences. So it's mm -hmm. um, like in a Greek Orthodox, you might expect to find a pews or someplace to sit, but in most of them, you wouldn't. You'd be standing for the service. Yeah, that was something that was quite, uh, it was pretty stark from our point of view that, <laughs> yes. you know, uh, definitely not only different from Protestantism, but even Catholicism, you'd expect to see pews to sit in and stuff. So 
Um, I think they're Russian Orthodox. They're from different parts of Ukraine. They met in college. And I know he speaks Russian and she speaks Ukrainian. But and they they tell us like we don't speak either. But um, they tell us that even in their home, he speaks Russian, she, she speaks Ukrainian, and they understand each other just fine. But Close they enough, don't yeah. speak each other's language. <laughs> but uh, so that's kind of fun. But and then of course now they're they're speaking a lot of English as they've been here since 2012. But um, I want to move on to Baha'i. You know, you brought up Baha'i at the beginning. <laughs> that was on my list to talk about. I know nothing about Baha'i. Uh, what can you tell us about the Baha'i faith? Um, it's one of those very very interesting religious uh, traditions, and it really comes out of and is connected to uh, Shia Islam. So the uh, Shiite tradition holds to a view of uh, imams who will have a succession of uh, advancing, the, the kingdom's going to advance, the kingdom of Islam will advance, and and uh, take over the world eventually. And there are different schools of thought, just like we have eschatological debates in Christianity between uh, dispensationalism and, and uh, all of those uh, different views of, of the timing of the rapture and when the tribulation is going to happen and when Christ's return will be. They have very similar disputes within Islam. And so the idea is that this 12th Imam was going to return and, and restore uh, the kingdom, and there was a teacher in the um, 19th century who claimed to have done that, and I'm not even going to pretend to pronounce all these names that <laughs> are uh, Persian, so they're, they're Farsi and Arabic words that are, that are used, and um, so this, this specific teacher came, and he claimed to be this imam who was the divine the revealed uh, divine here on the earth and he died and another of his uh, protégés one of his students took on the role of what they would call the uh, the divine glory of Allah so he believes that he was he believed he was the divine glory of Allah come to earth and presented himself as such uh, created Quite a stir, as you can imagine, in yeah. uh, in Iran, and disrupted a lot of the uh, government officials and, and displeased them and things. And so there were various periods of exile, and he was transferred out of there into Turkey, and then eventually uh, to Haifa and Israel, and then um, very uh, very connected to the roots of Islam, but then claiming new divine revelation. And so there was new divine revelation that he recorded and his writings were to be the only ones that were received as true and if anyone uh, rebelled against those things then uh, they were not following the true religion and the true faith and then his son took over for him after he died and he was supposed to be the guardian of that and uh, they set up the uh, universal justice center uh, which is today uh, present in haifa israel where their headquarters are, and um, the the whole concept of the uh, kind of the rejection of a lot of the ideals of Islam, but still holding to some of them, and then adding in this new revelation, it just kind of boggles my mind that anybody would fall for that type of thing, and it it really kind of reminds me of the. Um, 
I guess it's the Islamic parallel of Mormonism. I was just going to, I was going to ask that being you come out of a Mormon background, would that, would that, would that analogy fit? I think it really does because it's taking a, a few of the basic core ideas and uh, using them to kind of frame up uh, the, the thinking. And it takes this one piece and runs with it and goes off in another direction. And we see that a lot in the, the counterfeit cults in Christianity. And it seems that this is one of those counterfeit cults of Islam. Okay. Uh, it's a counterfeit of a counterfeit, of course, but sure. uh, taking, taking that core idea and, and running with it. And so those people who are in the Baha'i faith believe that they're following this path and that this, uh, this man was, was the uh, divine glory of Allah on the earth and that following his precepts will get, help them to obtain salvation. Okay, so they would they consider themselves kind of a fulfillment of Islam as, as like we would consider Christianity to be a fulfillment of Judaism? Yeah, that might be a similar way to look at it as well. Uh, okay. Because it was, it's that idea of being the 12th imam, the one who's going to sure. fulfill all of those things. Uh, they would also look at it as uh, a bit more of a cyclic nature. So if the, the first cycle began with Adam and ended just before this 12th imam, then he's the beginning of the new cycle. And so this is a, a, new, uh, a new dispensation, I guess okay. we would say in, in Christian terms, a new period of time where that teaching is, is supposed to spread and it's supposed to be the guidance for all people. And the light uh, that is in them is supposed to, to join with the, uh, with the light of Allah. And um, a very, again, still a very um, vague, distant idea of, of God. So just like Islam, uh, the Allah, the God of Islam is a distant uh, deity who really isn't engaged with humans in any specific way. There's no relational aspects there. A very similar idea carries over into Baha'i as well. Okay. Well, I greatly appreciate that because I just every now everything I know about Baha'i is what you just told me. I mean, literally, <laughs> I knew they were based in uh, Haifa, Israel, but that's that's literally all I knew about them. Um, well, let's get back to the six points then. We've got God, man, authority, sin, salvation, and creation. So, assuming I, I'm just going to assume you can correct me here that as an offshoot of Islam, that they would be monotheistic and have kind of that yes, semi-Islamic uh, monotheistic group and. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to peek and cheat a little bit here, <laughs> head to that chapter in the book. Um, yeah, a very similar idea of God. You, you wouldn't find many variations between um, the Baha'i view of God and, and the uh, Islamic view of God. Okay. And then man? Um, man's basically a good being, very much like Islam. Uh, there's, he's a good being, and he can be influenced for good or for evil okay. by different forces in the world. So it's that very externalized idea of, of temptation. There's no real concept of a, a sinful nature or anything that would bring corruption from within. Okay. Um, their authority, do they uh, do they still recognize the Quran then being an offshoot of Islam? Or? Um, they would say that there are truths in all religious views which is a common theme in a lot of uh, other views as well. They'd say there's truth from God revealed in lots of different prophets and different writings, but their ultimate writing is that uh, the writings that came down 
through Baha'u'llah, who is the one who is supposed to be this divine glory. So anything that he's recorded is what they would look to as their authoritative source, just like we would the Bible. So they would okay. hold other writings, even the Bible, they would say that Jesus was a prophet and someone who brought uh, God's light to the world and, and had good things to say and good things to teach us, but that the ultimate expression comes through this this last Messiah of theirs, this prophet of theirs. Okay, so he's kind of, uh, he kind of supersedes uh, Muhammad then? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So everything, all of his writings would be their, um, their official doctrines. And yeah. like I said, his son was the guardian of those things, and then it passed on to his grandson after that. And uh, there were there have been some interpretations and other things that they provided, but basically his writings are the ones that they would stick to. Okay. Now, is Baha'i, they, they can't be very big at all. I mean, Shia Islam is is already like 10% of Muslims are Shia, if I remember correctly. I mean, they're they're kind of a, a minority. They're, they're quite a minority. And if yeah. they're a break off of the minority, I mean, are there really, like how, how many people claim to be Baha'i? If you... um, I haven't looked at the statistics lately. Uh, it would only be in the number of millions, uh, nowhere in the hundreds of millions or anything like that. Sure. Okay. And I, I honestly don't know. Um, I mean, I haven't done as much street evangelism things in the last few years, and but in in lots of years of engaging people, I've never personally interacted with anybody who's who's professed this faith. And so that's one of the reasons I use it as my, if you ever sit next to somebody. <laughs> oh, yeah. Buy. Well, that's a good point. That's, I, uh, I never have myself. Yeah. Um, what, um, yeah, I think I've come across, and I don't come across these people at all, but I think I've come across more Harry Krishnas than I have Baha'is. Sure, yeah. Um, or this next one that I wanted to discuss is uh, Sikhs, Sikhism. And uh, I don't come across them either, but you see them from time to time. Um, I imagine you guys have a pretty sizable population there in the Twin Cities area. I know there's a, a large group there. Of Sikhs? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not sure. Um, my last job I had over 10 years ago, there was there was a guy who worked in the building, not in the same company, but worked in the building that was clearly a Sikh, um, wore the wore the head headdress and and mm-hmm. whatnot. But uh, I I don't see many of them. But then I just learned that I also live in you know I moved to this house uh, three years ago, and and uh, since then I learned that we have the biggest. Um, Hindu temple in Minnesota is just like practically in my backyard. So there's quite a Hindu population here. Yeah. And if you, as you think about Sikhism, they're kind of a, a another blend, much like Baha'i. Uh, a lot of is Islamic influence and a lot of Hindu influence. So you get the, uh, the monistic worldview of Hindu really dominates, uh, but they draw some of their um, ethical ideas from islam okay and so they are uh, a, a very uh close-knit community they keep to, to keep together in good community uh, they're very uh, conscientious people they have these uh, six characteristics that they keep um and those those were reflected in the way that they dress so the turban that they wear um and they the men will wear they won't cut their hair and they'll grow a beard and they wear a comb that represents uh, their their good grooming habits. They 
typically wear a small short sword with them that represents their desire to, to, to defend those people who are helpless. And so uh, they have they have that core set of ideas that they revolve around, but their, their worldview really would be best described um, more along the lines of Hinduism. So they have a monistic view of the world that the universe is all one and that they're seeking um, to take the light that is in them to be merged with the light that is the universal light. Uh, again, Baha'i borrows that concept. It's present in Hinduism and, and other Eastern religions. So a lot of Eastern influence in that sense and in their monistic worldview and, and the way they interact with um, concepts so of they... sin and salvation is very much the same. It's, it's external forces. The world around us is all an illusion, and we have to try and escape oh. those temptations and those forces that would draw us away from. That sounds almost uh, a little Buddhist. Truly, our inner self. That sounds almost a little Buddhist, then, too. But... Uh, yeah, definitely. Some um, when we think about Buddhism and Hinduism, there's been so much mixing of those two mm. that often people, yeah, get those ideas and concepts confused as well because what we know about those things, especially in the West and and the way they've interacted. In Western culture, uh, they overlap a lot. Okay. Where, in reality, Buddhism is actually an atheistic religion that denies the existence of any supernatural um, god figure. Where Hinduism and uh, Sikhism and others would embrace that idea of lots of different gods. Okay, that was one of my big questions. Was was uh, going back to the god? Are they are they then polytheistic like a Hindu might no, be? They would. They would claim to be uh, focused on one immortal being, but okay. that there could be different expressions of those things. So in its in its purest sense, then, yeah, Sikhism would be monotheistic. But, okay. Are they uh, kind of more polytheistic then? Or? Because of that Hindu influence, there's a lot of blending of those other uh, deities influencing things. Are they kind of pantheistic then, or...? Um, I wouldn't put them directly in that category because they they do look for uh, that look to that one immortal being, and so that concept kind of um, takes them out of that category. But again, it's it, different individuals are going to interact with things um, in a different way. So they would definitely deny uh, the concept of a our biblical concept of a creator God, but they're um, going to look to um, one immortal being who's, who's the essence of all of those things. Uh, so still no idea of a God that would take any form or shape like we see very prevalent in Hinduism with all the different gods. Uh, so a little bit distinct from that. Okay. Uh, so authority, what would their primary authority be uh, again they've got writings that are uh, collections from their different gurus so they would look to their gurus as the ones who uh, give them guidance in those things okay uh, very similar to the hindu system where they have uh, in the hindu system they have the vedas that are those writings that they look to from their gurus from the past uh, so the traditions of the gurus and the way that they guide them uh, to set aside all of those uh, worldly desires and put those things away from them to, to uh, become one with the universe is, is uh, really the, the typical way. Their, their main writing is from uh, Guru Granth Sahib, 
and that's a collection of writings, but there are others that they would look to as well. Okay. And the other thing I was going to ask is that because you kept talking about this blending of Islam and Hinduism, is that reflected in the geography? Do they come from kind of that maybe Pakistan, uh, Western India area? Yeah, so they're in that area geographically where they'd have those influences from both sides. And okay. uh, see that is likely a result, just like as we see uh, Buddhism as you move further to the east uh, away from India and, and uh, Pakistan, you get more of the, the Buddhist influence flavoring the, the local religious varieties that you get Hinduism blending with Buddhism. Okay. Now, um, should I come across a Sikh? Um, let's go back to engaging them. Like what, what kind of questions would you suggest that I ask a Sikh in order to engage in a discussion and hopefully get them moving towards the gospel? I think the, um, they, they have a very interesting concept of sin. So they have the view of these five vices that they think are the, you're supposed to rid yourself of these vices so that you can uh, become free from all of those attachments to the world and be united with that, uh, with the, with the God figure. And so let me just glance down at him here. So ego, anger, greed, worldly attachment and lust. And so if you have a, if you have a bad heart, so they, re- they recognize some idea of uh, the, the nature of the person being good or bad. So okay. that's a very significant touch point we can have with them there. And then well, uh, the natural way to, to move that into the gospel is what do you do to get rid of that sin, yeah. to get rid of those vices? And as they start talking about all the things that they have to do and the rituals they have to do and the way they have to try and purify themselves, through those works, again, we're back to that, pointing them to rest in Christ mm-hmm. and talking about what God has done for us in Christ and that he gives us the Holy Spirit, the power to overcome those things in the future. So we have we have that forgiveness of sin in Christ and the power to live a righteous and holy life by the Holy Spirit. So that would be a really solid touch point to connect with somebody from the Sikh faith. Okay. Can we go back over those five uh i don't remember what you call them five the five vices they five have, vices yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. i mean just like slowly here because it sounded to me like as you were going you were going through them kind of quickly but kind of sounded like they marry up to some of the commandments oh sure so, so ego ego um well that'd be that first would commandment be, that would be a uh or second selfishness basically so they would they would that's why i talked about community initially Mm-hmm. They're very involved in community and connected to community. So selflessness is a virtue for them. Sure. Mm-hmm. But that sounds like a, you could maybe parallel with the first and second commandment there with, you know, making idol out of self. And, and that's kind yeah. of what ego mm-hmm. does. But then the next one was anger, anger. Well, uh, murder, yes. uh, mm-hmm. as Jesus said, greed, greed would be coveting theft. other people's things, theft and coveting. Yeah. Yeah. Worldly attachments. Again, coveting. Um, that would be, they would have a little bit different concept of that. So they would say we, they wouldn't want to be connected to anything in the world that would, that would bind their heart to the world rather okay. than being united to the divine. And so kind Maybe of some idolatry there too. where we would talk about being devoted to, to God instead of, uh, or setting our things on 
or our mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Sure. Very parallel concept there. Idolatry. And, kind of yeah. And the last one is lust, of course, and yeah, direct parallel to the commandments there. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's uh, that's helpful then. And because uh, I think we're used to, we're more accustomed as we're engaging with other Americans or, or Westerners. Um, we've, I, I know most, uh, most people that are of like mind are kind of geared towards that, you know, maybe Ray Comfort way, you know, <laughs> this kind of, he, yeah. he's really brought it to light, but, um, using the law to show somebody their sin and, and sure. their need of a savior. And they're trapped in, uh, the same type of Hindu cycle of births and rebirths okay. to, uh, better yourself over time, uh, to eventually get rid of all of those things that you, so that you can merge with the divine. But we have, we have the divine has come to us. God has stepped down into history and, and come to be with us a much, much better, much more hopeful uh, way to look at, at the future. And, and that's something we can offer them. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I had two more. I'm not sure if we'll have time to get to all of them, but if we do, we do. If we don't, we don't. Uh, another one that's a bit of a mystery to me is Shinto. And that would be even further east than, than uh, you know, we talked about Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism. But, uh... So um, Shinto, we had a young lady from Japan who's worked with the Answers in Genesis ministry before in the past. Actually have quite a, a vibrant uh, creation ministry in Japan with creation scientists groups there. Mm-hmm. And Michiko is, um, I've known her for many years. And she's worked with us, so she was able to write this uh, chapter on Shinto for us. So basically, uh, Shinto comes out of an an animistic view of the world. So they would uh, ascribe spiritual forces to um, rocks and trees and rivers and and all of those parts of nature, and especially to uh, the the dead souls of, of people who've lived before. And... Uh, so it's basically an ancestor worship culture. Okay. So all of the all of the uh, concepts of uh, curses that are brought about by, or if you have bad health, it could be this this ancestor spirit cursing you. So it's very much built around that animistic idea of of spiritual forces that are outside of us that are impacting us, and we have to do something to try to appease them and and uh, offer them. Uh, different forms of worship and of sacrifices and of uh, offerings for them uh, participate in different feast days that are that are centered around those things so it's a it's an animistic religion okay and that's um, based mostly in japan yeah it's it's really exclusively japan um okay. you're not going to have uh, unless you have someone who's come out of out of japan uh, they're not going to be practicing Shinto. It's very, very centered in the Japanese culture directly, okay. where things like Buddhism um, spread and came into Japan from mainland China and other places and uh, got kind of blended in with a lot of the Shinto traditions and actually created some very um, significant cultural struggles in the past and wars fought over those things, uh, religious wars about holding fast to that Shinto tradition versus allowing a Buddhism to come in and, and corrupt, uh, corrupt those things in the past. But today, uh, most Japanese would probably be involved in some blending of those two things if they're, they see themselves as religious, but it's a, 
an extremely superstitious cultural uh, lifestyle as well, because they're always thinking about, oh, if I if I walk across this the wrong way, what spirit am I going to upset? And if I don't participate in this event, what spirit am I going to upset and, and cause this bad fortune to come upon me and, and these curses come upon me? And how am I, uh, how am I going to appease those spirits? And um, it's really, I, again, it's, it's just such a uh, hopeless yeah. religious yeah. view because all you, all you can hope for is that you make it through life without making too many spirits angry. Uh, there's really no concept of uh, any type of salvation or future uh, betterment after in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very, very hopeless. It, it's reminding me of um, my, my homeschool two of my boys and um, at kind of the end of the last school year, we were reading a book. Uh, it wasn't Shinto. It was this woman, but it was similar, this animalist a- animistic side. Um, this woman was a Wycliffe Bible translator in the Philippines. And um, she was sent in to a remote tribe in the northern Philippines to uh, translate the Bible into their language and, and and then hopefully eventually share the gospel with them. And um, and there was a lot of that going on there, too, where they were so uh, bound by this animism where uh, if anything bad ever happened to anybody, they, they ascribed it to these, um, these evil spirits and constantly having to appease these spirits and um, they've got these shamans that are you know, sp- spirits are speaking through and demanding uh, you know, sometimes their entire livelihoods. You know, they'll de- demand yeah. whether it be, you know, sacrifice a chicken, hopefully, and they're, you know, they're hoping maybe it's just a chicken or or all the way up to, you know, like a water buffalo where, um, if, if I remember correctly, it was a large animal that they would have to go around to all of their extended family as far as they can and have everybody kind of pitch in and, and help buy this animal so that they could sacrifice it. And, and, uh, it was so capped. I mean, it had them so captive that, um, if anybody came looking for a collection to buy this animal, nobody asked any questions. They're like, something's bad is happening. Here you go. You know, all the best to you. <laughs> that curse is going to come back to you if you don't help that person. And mm-hmm. um, there's also a lot of shame built into those types of cultures where if you've had any type of misfortune in the past, that's a shameful thing. And you've brought shame into your family. Uh, yeah. So there's a lot of uh, that superstitious shame culture really, breeds a lot of hopelessness in those people as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I don't, again, I don't, I don't come across Shinto's, but if we're going to engage them with the gospel, again, circling back, um, what, how do we break through on, uh, it's such a, a stark, starkly different worldview than, than we have in the West. Um, I think in in this case, it's it's one of those things you're going to have to go back to the foundation. You're going to go have to go back to Genesis. Really start with creation. Who is man? Um, how did how did God create him? And and just create that uh, intrigue and that whole narrative for people to understand how God actually created us. Help them to see how the biblical worldview makes sense of the of the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that. Uh, most of these people in these animistic religions, especially in more modern countries, really believe that these spirits are doing these things. It's just part of the culture that they've grown up in, and they're just kind of 
uh, brainwashed and going along with things. So specifically with, with Shintoism, I would suggest a lot of them don't really believe that the spirits are, are responsible for those things and uh, helping them recognize, pointing them back to the, the sin that is in their own hearts and helping them see how uh, they can, they can understand how their own interactions and actions cause negative effects for other people and, and uh, just pointing them to that sinful nature in man mm-hmm. and giving them the, the hope of the gospel, uh, regardless of, of what they have heard in the past, God will use that truth that we're declaring about who they really are to open their eyes. We trust that the Holy Spirit's going to use those things to um, open those blind eyes and unstop those deaf ears, and that they'll hear that as truth and receive that. Uh, we don't necessarily have to dismantle their whole worldview for that truth to be real to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that can happen in an instance, uh, just sharing uh, sharing the truth of who Christ is and what he's done for us. Well, it sounds like that might actually be easier now than it would have been in history because of that, as you said, they're not maybe really believing it like they would have in times past. They're yeah, kind of holding they really on to tradition. No, there's no concept of um, a judgment and an afterlife or any of those type of things. But if we appeal to that sense of justice that God has, has put in us, that's a that's a great place to uh, to connect. They know that they've they've done these. If if they if we can present who God is as Creator and that He's made us and that we're accountable to Him, they will. That's a part they can connect with because they're. Uh, very accountable to their family structures and those and those type of systems, and uh, again, that goes back to the shame culture and the way those things are portrayed. So, recognizing that accountability and then saying, if we're accountable to this Creator God, then He has the right to judge us and and to cast us away from Him to set us outside of His family. But He's made a way for us to be restored and and to come back and point them to that truth in Christ. All right. Well, the last one that I had was um, empiricism, and I wonder if we. There's I mean, a big jump. <laughs> yeah. Well, is it so? <laughs> um, you know, especially with if if Shintoism is 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 becoming just more of a cultural thing rather than a, an actual religious belief, then maybe they're they're moving more towards an empiricist worldview. Yeah, and I mean one of the one of the premises of the whole book series is that there are really only two religious views mm-hmm. when we break it down into in an ultimate sense. We have what God has revealed is his his true religion and the religions that man has made up. So are we trusting God's word or are we trusting man's word? And so empiricism would fall into that broad category of humanism. It says man is the measure of all things. It says, I think, therefore I am. And uh, it's connected to other ideas, uh, atheism, materialism, secular humanism. All of those things are connected in some sense. Uh, Empiricism really finds its roots in some of the Enlightenment thinkers and philosophers. So uh, David Hume and uh, John Locke would be the two premier philosophers who took a... uh, an empiricist view of reality. And basically, if you think of empirical, empirical sciences, those are things that we test with our senses. So if we can, uh, if we want to know about reality, 
their conjecture is that we can only learn the true nature of reality by engaging our senses to empirically evaluate those things. So if we can't see it or smell it or touch it or taste it or hear it or perceive it in some way, then it doesn't really exist. So they're very focused on the material world and being able to engage with those things. So materialism and empiricism uh, often go very much hand in hand within this uh, worldview, uh, especially in an atheistic, secular atheistic worldview. Uh, it's it sounds like it's closely tied to modernism. Is that a? Oh, sure. It comes out of that whole modernist thinking and uh, Enlightenment thinking period. So very much um, drawn out of a lot of those same ideas where I can use my intellect to determine what is true and what is real. I don't need to rely on anything outside of myself, nothing supernatural. Uh, there's no, no concept of any type of divine revelation because uh, what is divine is by its very nature supernatural and I can't empirically detect God uh, so I have no need for God and, and set that idea totally out of my mind. So when we think about those things, um, John Locke and David Hume definitely very much characterize that atheistic way of thinking. So it seems to me that the logical, there's two logical conclusions or, 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 or destinations for uh, an empiricist or a modernist. And that is on, on the more negative side, they're going to, they're going to eventually see the flaws of the worldview and, and end up towards uh, postmodernism, which really was a reaction against seeing those flaws and stuff. Or the other side is to recognize that the biblical worldview is really um, going to give the answers people are looking for. Yeah. And um, I think that was kind of, like you said, the, the reaction against modernism was that, well, it's such a, um, it's such a futile way to think. Let's just think that nothing is really true. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we, if we extend the, the thinking of empiricism and, and those ideas, we really wind up with a, a futile, nihilistic view of the world where nothing is absolute, nothing can be determined uh, in any real sense. And we wind up with a, um, a whole bunch of systems of thinking that, that developed out of that like logical positivism and trying to develop ideas that could affirm what was actually real and distinguish those from false ideas. But those those ideas ultimately have no grounding. And when we think about the, uh, the way that uh, people interact with the world, this has basically taken people down a road of recognizing that their existence is pointless. There's no hope. There's no future. Um, if there's no one who I'm accountable to and nobody to interact with in any of those things, uh, as far as morality, there's no standard for morality. There's no standard for right and wrong and justice. And we really wind up with a, a system of thought that's based in my own experience. And if I don't experience it the way you do, how can I even know that what you experienced was real? Mm -hmm. And it, it becomes a, a, a really a self-refuting, self-defeating idea if we're trying to come up with a a philosophy of the world and a way to understand the world in a, in a coherent way. Well, that's where we, that, that's where we're at now in the world. I mean, that's <laughs> our, kind of our biggest um, 
battle right now is against this now postmodern way of thinking and um, trying to steer people back to solid grounding in a biblical worldview. Yeah, and uh, it's it's really one of those things that has even crept into the church to some sense. We think about the, uh, from the atheistic view, looking at the idea of, of creation, there's no creator, but nature uh, has created itself as it were. And uh, we have this evolutionary idea. So there's this advancing concept. Man has advanced from lower forms of animals up through the ages. And uh, here we are today as this, this creature, but we're going to evolve into something in the future. So there's really no, there's no point to living. There's no true purpose in any, um, in any of these philosophies of empiricism, materialism, uh, secular humanism. They're just really about what can I get for me now? That's Mm -hmm. the only way you can, you can look for any type of purpose or meaning in any of these systems. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all I had for our discussion uh thank you so much for for all of that um engaging eastern uh, engaging other religions eastern orthodoxy baha'i sikh shinto and empiricism um i i'm i want to throw you something you're not might not see coming but um you're with we've talked about it you're with answers in genesis yes um just totally off topic of what we've been discussing for the last nearly an hour. Uh, what's going on that excites you right now at Answers in Genesis? Oh, we've got a lot of things happening. Um, down at the Ark Encounter, we just opened the Big Answers Center this past spring. So that's a 2,500-seat auditorium there where we've had um, musical guests and we've been able to have conferences. We had a 900-seat theater, so if any of your uh, listeners, viewers saw the, the ham nigh debate. We had over 800 people packed into that auditorium and it was crazy tight. So now we have a 2,500 seat auditorium to, to do events like that. Uh, mm-hmm. We have a pastor's conference coming up this fall that's going to uh, deal with the, uh, the issue of, of race, uh, kind of one of the core ideas that we deal with in our ministry, because if we're all descendants of Adam and Eve, we're all one race. Uh, there's no room for racism in the church. There's no biblical idea of that. We're all one race, the human race, um, different cultural groups, so teaching how those things come out of Babel. So looking forward to that conference. We've got uh, Bodie Bachum and Dr. Charles Ware and um, Johnny Hunts and others coming to, to share those things. And out of that, connected with that, uh, I work with the curriculum department. I'm the manager of the curriculum department right now. And so mm-hmm. we're going to be releasing a small group curriculum study along those lines that'll have a a set of dvd lessons that you can walk through with a a small group or church sunday school class and really kind of examine those issues of um, where these ideas of race and and the struggles and the strife that we have in our culture because of those things comes from and how we overcome those things with the power of the gospel and how when we when we look at those things through a gospel lens that there's there's neither Jew nor Greek or slave nor free nor all of those categories break down and we can all see ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ uh, within the church. And in a broader context, we're all children of God uh, made in his image, um, not in the not children of God in the sense that uh, John talks about that, that we are 
uh, born again, but that we're made in his image as part of mm -hmm. his creation. And we can find common ground and relate to those things. So uh, that's a very encouraging thing coming out of our ministry uh, in the near future. And tons of other great, great things that we're doing. Lots of content and uh, engaging things in the scientific context, uh, as well as uh, some of these more uh, sensitive social issues and things like that. Yeah, I know that that's been such a hot topic over the last year or two, uh, social justice and, and the racial issues and stuff. And um, something I've looked at as a topic, I, I think it's being discussed so much that it's not necessarily, you know, I don't feel a real, um, or uh, I, don't, I don't feel that it's like super critical for me to talk about it because I think there are a lot of other great ministries that are doing it. Vody Bacham, I know, is, a, is I, I really respect his his take on things and uh, I'm glad to hear he's, he's coming over. He's been in Africa for several years. Yes. And so having him come over. He'll be over. And um, it, it's really rather than focusing on all of the specific cultural things we're going to do to solve all these problems, mm -hmm. uh, just really pointing to those truths in scripture, yeah. how they're going to change my heart and how they change my heart toward the individuals around me and, and the way I interact with them. That's, that's the real hope we're pointing to yeah. uh, not solving it through some government system or all of right. those types of things. We know there have been uh, lots of uh, damaging things in history of, of the church and here in America, we see those things in our culture and our societies. So how do I, as an individual address those things in my context and, yeah. and deal with that at my heart and a way that is going to influence and impact those people around me? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think just having a good, strong biblical theology kind of works through those two, and understanding things like union in Christ, and that sure. you know we're yeah. all have that um, we're all united kind of to each other via our union with Christ. And we've talked about that on uh, on our show, and uh, but uh, good good to see that good ministries are addressing such a hot topic. Well, um, if people want to find out more about the books or the ministry, um, books would be available at answersbookstore.com. And a lot of these chapters are actually on our website, uh, uh -huh. answersingenesis.org. They can go and search some of those different religious topics and uh, those things will come up. So uh, lots of great resources. That's what our ministry is about, getting resources into the hands of people yeah. so that they can be doing ministry in their local churches, their families, their communities. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. I mean, this is, uh, it's, it's a uh, great, great resource. We've now done two shows on it. And, uh, um, we probably do about 10 or 15. Yeah, I think, we really right? could. <laughs> Over 1200 pages in these, <laughs> in these three books. Yep. Um, but it's, I, I mean, I saw, I think I mentioned it last time. It's been two and a half years, but uh, I think I mentioned it. It's, it's value. It's valuable to me in the same way that Walter Martin's book, um, kingdom of the cults is valuable, but, um, sure. yeah. it's a resource it's, you can go to. It's there. And if, you know, if you meet a Sikh, you can pull out a chap, pull out the book volume two, and you can flip open the chapter on Sikhism and, and just get a primer on Sikhism and, um, and, and a good primer. I mean, quicker even than a Google search, you know, it might take you a while just to find, you know, what can I trust while you're doing a Google yeah, search? Reliable there you go. source on the internet's tricky. These days. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. So thanks so much, Roger. Um, glad to be with you. I, I appreciate your, your, uh, 
input and uh thank you for being a guest and love uh your role with answers in genesis and a great ministry that they have so well, thank you echo zoe radio is an outreach of echo zoe ministries if you are blessed by the show please consider offering your support there are many things you can do to help including prayer sharing the show with others and your financial support Echo Zoe Ministries is a registered nonprofit organization with 501c3 tax-exempt status, and your donations are tax-deductible. For more information about how you can support Echo Zoe Ministries, please visit echozoe.com support. Well, that wraps up episode 136. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. For show notes, visit echozoe.com 136. Be sure to check out the website also for links to connect to Echo Zoe on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube and love to connect with you. So follow, like, and subscribe to Echo Zoe Ministries. Help us also get the word out by sharing or retweeting the announcements to your favorite episodes. And don't forget the email alerts also. So, uh, and th- this episode is a great example for why uh, an alert is nice to have being so late in the month. Um, you you never know when it's going to come out. I like to have them at the beginning of the month, but um, obviously this month is going to be more towards the end. And also because it's at the end of the month, um, the September episode won't be up right away. Um, I haven't even thought about who I'm going to interview yet. It's almost September. This will probably go up August 30th, 31st. So just barely catch on August in August. And uh, I'll turn around and uh, start, start looking for another guest and a topic for September, but it won't be out right away, of course. So, Uh, Lord willing, we will be back next month, though, for uh, the September episode of Equizoi Radio. Thanks for listening.